I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. <gasps> Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Sarah Kalney, who works as a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Massachusetts. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers, and I am a new mom. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. And I mm-hmm. met this person you're a mom of yesterday yes. and he's the best. <laughs> he's, I mean, yeah, I'm a little biased, but he's the best. I am too, but I, <laughs> I firmly believe yeah, that our um, opinions could be factual. Yeah. I mean, like I don't sleep anymore. Um, frequently changing my clothes. Um, <laughs> still love him. So he is very handsome and he's, he's very strong. I just ordered some dress clothes. He's very strong. <laughs> I frequently find my hair clenched in his fists. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I just ordered him some dress clothes because we're attending a wedding. So, and we're doing a photo shoot later <laughs> this week. So I needed dress clothes for my baby. Um, so we'll see how cute those. I'm sure he'll uh, be a, he'll steal the show of yes. any place he's in. Agreed. Yeah. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a cishet white woman and my pronouns are she, her, and I recently got a part-time job on a farm. Woo! <laughs> oh, yes. I'm very it's, excited about this because you. you brought I, me some produce from the farm yesterday, so that was I really did. I exciting. I brought you in some vegetables. I'm bringing vegetables home every day. My first day I brought home like 30, no, 20 tomatoes and we made some of the best sauce I've ever eaten Mm -hmm. I watched as my partner made some of the best sauce I've ever eaten but yeah I wanted to learn how to work on a farm and here I am it's very hard if anyone (laughs) was curious it is pushing me to my physical limits it's wonderful to work outside and commute somewhere Joanna where I talk to people whoa (laughs) that aren't (laughs) talk to people that are co-workers and I I I like need to pace myself a little bit um I think I'm just (laughs) I'm a little overexcited to see people, but <laughs> but I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, that is that. Farmer Sarah, that's me. That's awesome. It's, it's so strange being around other people. I'm now like way more in my head, like, oh, you need to talk. You need to say, you can't just go like, <laughs> you know, like you, you need to say something. I, I went to yeah. like mommy and me yoga and I was like, oh, wait, I have to like, socialize how do I do this Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time uh differentiating between like 
like you know in sessions I'm like okay I'll only share a tiny bit if it's accepted, like applicable <laughs> yeah. when I'm talking to my partner I will you know share until both of our ears are bleeding. <laughs> yeah. and with family you know you know you share what you share but here I'm like wow I am either like quiet or just like spilling my guts I need to I need to find a middle ground that <laughs> yeah. makes me feel happy and uh not ruminating afterwards it's 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 been a it's been a great uh, opportunity to practice some self-compassion. Yes. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I, oh, and it's a woman-owned farm. That is so cool. And all all female employees. That's so uh, cool. Which is also a positive. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I find I tend to like overshare a lot too, or just like <laughs> talk to fill a void. So it's it's it is a little nice to be like, huh? Talk now this is your chance to shine. It's not like, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, I completely agree. And something else that's coming in to rescue me is that I'm just physically unable to keep talking. Cause I'm like literally panting because <laughs> of so much like I am, I consider myself fairly physical fit, f- physically fit. I, you know, I try to take a walk like five, at least five times a day or oh, Jesus, five times a week. And I do yoga I like, every day. Damn, five times a day. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of time. I'm like, <laughs> I walk often, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sedentary, but this is, this is like, this is like other level <laughs> what, we're, yeah, having to, what I, we're having to do. And yeah, I applaud you. Thank you. Thank you. That's yes. why I do it for the applause. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> someone who, who like pulled a muscle in their back this morning, stretching, just like putting my arms up in the air. So um, but those uh, arms are getting a lot of work because uh-huh. there's there's you know a considerable Lee pounded baby that I'm mm-hmm. carrying all the time. Yeah, he has pounds. He's so cute. He's I weighed pounds. him at the He's mommy me yoga. There's a they, she brings like a scale, so it's really cute. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. very very nice. And you can like put it on a chart and see if he's like what percentile he is. <laughs> As like, the nerd in me is like yes. Yeah. Yeah. Data. <laughs> I do love a good data, a good yeah. data point. Yes. And I was oh like, well, God. you know, he does have all his clothes on, so this isn't the same as at the doctor. So we'll just have to remember. <laughs> and I'm saying this to this myself. Become problematic my yeah. very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Um anyway. yeah, but Joanna, this is our first episode back after a, yes. after a break. So if y'all are tuning in, for the no first one time, can tell. Yeah. Yeah, this is you know it's gonna be yeah it's gonna be strange because we'll have like before I gave birth episodes before I gave birth (laughs) slash summer and then after after yeah after new mom after farmer after (laughs) (laughs) yeah after I mean it's Mama Joe and Farmers (laughs) Mama Joe and Farmer Sarah that's it's like our new band, our folk band, please. Yeah. Oh, that sounds very nice. Yes. And, you know, also pointing out that we are, I don't know, I, I'm just proud of us for continuing to do this, especially after everything that we've all been subjected to over the last <laughs> couple of months. I've, I'm really, really, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm really happy that we have this platform to come together and talk yeah. to healthcare professionals and folks who are trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. heavy sigh at a time <laughs> that's my therapy go-to oh oh, oh. <laughs> how clean are your floors 
Um, oh, can I? <laughs> so I remember something that I said oh four goodness. months ago. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, this, this takes a less funny tone. But oh no. <laughs> we had an episode with. Um, yes, it is a serious. It is a serious housekeeping we had an episode with karen carnabucci that i loved Mm -hmm. uh joanna a couple months back but it was also right after we got the news about roe before the Mm -hmm. announcement but the day after the leak and i had said that in in my impassioned anger i had said that these abortion counseling clinics were illegal they are not and they're state funded So that's my floor cleaning, um, taking a serious tone, obviously, but I've been thinking about saying it for weeks (laughs) and I was hoping that you were going to be the one to bring up housekeeping. Okay, good. So I didn't have to take us down several notches. Yeah. And on that house, on that housekeeping note, just, we, we also are always going to have our abortion resources on, um, on our website, on every Mm -hmm. show notes. It's a very cool document that I put together from a bunch of Reddit posts, um, all of the links work, hopefully still. And um, feel free to share it with anybody. It's a Google Doc. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's like sorely needed. And if you're in Pennsylvania, definitely vote coming up, please. It's very important. Yeah, vote. Also find also find uh, local organizing groups because mm-hmm. you have more power than just voting. Don't let them yes. tell you otherwise. Yes. <laughs> but definitely, definitely vote. And if you have an organization near you that could use your time and your energy uh yeah throw your throw your weight into that ring what's the yes throw your Every, everybody should vote them. yeah throw oh. your weight weight your throw your weight your yeah. weight weigh them down with your love <laughs> yeah i mean everyone should vote just i'm not oh, being a someone who vote. lives in pennsylvania like this is really important <laughs> yeah we're, we are in we're in pretty a pretty uh scary potential future yeah in all seriousness and in all like <laughs> horror fear uh mm-hmm. doug mastriano is a pretty terrifying human being so please absolutely get out and vote to the so best is dr oz so <laughs> i anyway I, yeah i yeah i don't know i i i made a joke to cody that like you had to wait two years before getting in-state tuition and this this asshole moves here and he could immediately i think it's only a year after but that'll mm-hmm. probably be on my housekeeping next time okay <laughs> anyway he's not a good man no nope. go vote <laughs> go vote and find a local organizing group you can do it Woo-hoo. Oh, do All you right. have any housekeeping nope That's i don't yeah. um well stay tuned after the break for our history lesson And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Joanna, our resources for today, Joanna, our sources for today (laughs) include (laughs) A Brief History History of Grief by Norman McInery and A History of Grief and Mourning Across Cultures and Religions. And this is from Bruminate.com. Trigger warning, we will be talking about grief and loss. 
All right, Joanna, first we're going to talk about grief across religions. This is exciting. Let's talk about Confucianism for a moment. There are five grades of mourning obligations in the Confucian Code. A person is expected to honor most of these descended from their great-great-grandfather and most of their wives. The death of a person's father and mother would merit 27 months of mourning. The death of a person's grandfather on the male side, as well as their grandfather's side, would be grade two or necessitate 12 months of mourning. So I, I want to point out like how how much time is being taken. Yeah. You know, already. And there's a lot of calculating and like memory that seems to go into this, but I also feel like it's it's learned and there's a lot of people culturally to remind you. Um a paternal uncle is grade three at nine. Four is reserved for one's father's first cousin, maternal grandparents, siblings, and sister's children up to five months. First cousins once removed, second cousins, and the parents of a man's wife are considered grade five, three months. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking about how a lot of jobs, it, not a lot, I'm sorry, some jobs are offering uh, bereavement time and they will have like five days for an uncle, you know, <laughs> two weeks for a parent. And like, well, it's, it's kind yeah, of weird like that you need to- one day for something and a half day for something else. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, it's weird <laughs> yeah. to have it like, uh, like quantified, right? But mm-hmm. also, I guess it needs to be somewhere. I don't know. Okay. It doesn't yeah. need to be anything. Yeah. Let's talk about Christianity. Sure. Some of this will surprise you because I, I did not grow up Orthodox and I don't believe you. I did not either. Yes. All right. Orthodox Christians usually hold the funeral either the day after death or on the third day and always during the daytime. In traditional Orthodox communities, the body of the departed would be washed and prepared for burial by family or friends and then placed in the coffin in the home. A place in mourning would be recognizable by the lid of the coffin with a cross on it and once adorned with flowers set on the porch by the front door so this is something that that i see come up a lot is this kind of holding of holding of the loved one in the home in some Mm. cases special prayers are held on the third seventh or ninth and the 40 days after death the third sixth or ninth or twelfth month that's I can't even break that down. And annually thereafter in the memorial service for up to three generations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes men in mourning will not shave for the 40 days. In Greece and other Orthodox countries, it is not uncommon for widows to remain in mourning dress for the rest of their lives. When the Orthodox bishop dies, a successor is not elected until after the 40 days of mourning were completed, during which period his diocese is said to be widowed. Um, that's pretty interesting. Just a community mourning together and yeah. uh, being in the state of widowing. Um, mm. The 40th day has great significance in Orthodox religion, which I don't think that's limited to Orthodox. That's yeah. Judeo-Christian or Christian and Catholic. That's how many days that uh, Jesus was in the desert. So. Tempted thrice? Yes. I don't, I don't know. At least once. <laughs> okay. The 40th day has... 40 days. <laughs> Don't ask <laughs> me anymore. Uh, oh, actually, you're right. I mean, I know you're right, but here's some <laughs> validation from a second source. The 40th day has great significance in Orthodox religion. Consider the period during which soul, the soul of the deceased wanders the earth. So not oh, okay. Okay. On the 40th day, the ascension of the deceased soul occurs in the most important day in mourning period. The most important day of the mourning period. When special prayers are held on the grave site of the deceased. 
As in the Roman Catholic rites, there can be symbolic mourning. During Holy Week, some templates of the Church of Cyprus draw back black curtains around the icons. The services of Good Friday and Holy Saturday morning are patterned in part of the Orthodox Christian burial service and funeral lamentations. Good Friday was one of my favorite services of the whole Holy Week, uh, just because it was so dramatic and uh, really cool. I agree. Very melancholy and very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, our, uh, the the organist at our church used to play, oh my gosh, that song from <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> I don't know I'll, that one. That'll be on the next housekeeping. It's like really upsetting that I don't know it as a um, music major. It starts with a B, pretty sure. Barber, barber, pretty sure. Pretty sure. Anyway, let's like, move on from that. Barber's the name of the the uh, composer. Oh, so it's not a song for. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. It's, it's a classical piece in Saving It's a Private classical Ryan. piece that's in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Mm -hmm. In Hinduism, death is not seen as the final end, but it is seen as a turning point in a seemingly endless journey of the indestructible Atman or soul through innumerable bodies of animals and people. Hence, Hinduism prohibits excessive mourning or lamentation upon death, as this can hinder the passage of the departed soul towards its journey's end. As mourners will not help the dead in this world, therefore, the relative should not weep, but perform the obsequies to the best of their power. Hindu mourning is described in Dharma Shastras. It begins immediately after the cremation of the body and ends on the morning of the 13th day. Traditionally, the body is cremated within 24 hours after death. However, cremations are not held after sunset or before sunrise. Immediately after the death, an oil lamp is lit near the deceased and this lamp is kept burning for three days. Hinduism associates death with ritual impurity for the immediate blood family of the deceased. Hence, during these mourning days, the immediate family must not perform any religious ceremonies except funerals, must not visit temples or other sacred places, must not serve the sages who are holy men, must not give alms, must not read or recite from the sacred scriptures, nor can they attend social functions such as marriages and parties. The family of the deceased is not expected to serve any visiting guests food or drink. It is customary that the visiting guests do not eat or drink in the house where the death has occurred. The family in mornings are required to bathe twice a day, eat a single simple vegetarian meal, and try to cope with their loss. On the day of which the death has occurred, the family does not cook. Hence, usually close family and friends will provide food for the mourning family. White clothing, which is the color of purity, is also the color of mourning, and many will wear white during the mourning period. The male members of the family do not cut their hair or shave, and the female members of the family do not wash their hair until the 10th day after the death. If the deceased was young and unmarried, the Narayan Bali is performed by the pandits. The mantras of Bhairan Path are recited. This ritual is performed through the person who has given the ritual of giving fire to the dead body. On the morning of the 13th day, a ceremony is performed. The main ceremony involves a fire sacrifice in which offerings are given to the ancestors and to gods to ensure the deceased has a peaceful afterlife. Pin Samalan is performed to ensure the involvement of the departed soul with 
that of God. Typically after the ceremony, the family cleans and washes all the idols in the family shrine and flowers, fruits, and water and purified food are offered to the gods. Then the family is ready to break the period of mourning and return to daily life. All right. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Islam. In Shia Islam, examples of mourning practices are held annually in the month of the Muharram, the first month of the Islamic lunar calendar. The mourning is held in the commemoration of Iman al-Husayn ibn Ali, who was martyred along with his 72 companions. Shia Muslims wear black clothes and take out processions on, road, on the road to mourn in the tragedy of Karbala. Shia Muslims, Shia Muslims also mourn the death of Fatima, the only daughter of Muhammad, and the Shia Imams. Mourning is observed in Islam by increased devotion, receiving visitors and condolences, and avoiding decorative clothing or jewelry. Loved ones and relatives are to observe a three-day mourning period. Widows observe an extended mourning period, four months and ten days long, in accordance to the Quran. During this time, she is not to remarry, move from her home, or wear decorative clothing or jewelry. Grief at the death of a beloved person is normal, and weeping for the dead is allowed in Islam. What is prohibited is to express grief by wailing. Um, and in, yes, okay, what is prohibited is to express grief by wailing, shrieking, tearing hair or clothes, breaking things, scratching faces, or uttering phrases that make a Muslim lose faith. I think a lot of, at least the first half of this list, I would... I don't know. I have participated in with grief. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of bodily control in here, mm. like self-control. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I like a lot of it is self-protection of the body too, which in religions is very important. Okay. The Quran prohibits widows from engaging themselves for four lunar months and 10 days after the death of their husbands. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Judaism. Judaism looks upon mourning as a process by which the stricken can re-enter into society and so provides a series of customs that make this process gradual. The first stage, observed as all the stages are by intermediate relatives, this is the parents, the spouse, siblings, and the children, is the shiva, literally meaning seven, which consists of the first seven days after the funeral. The second stage is the shloshim, or 30, referring to the 30 days following the death. The period of mourning after the death of a parent lasts one year. Each stage places lighter demands and restrictions than the previous one in order to reintegrate the bereaved into normal life. I love that sentence, reintegrating the bereaved into normal life or life after. The most known and central stage in Shiva, which is a Jewish mourning practice in which people adjust their behavior as an expression of their bereavement for a week immediately after the burial. In the West, typically, mirrors are covered and a small tear is made in an item of clothing to indicate a lack of interest in personal vanity. The bereaved dress simply and sit on the floor, short stools or boxes rather than chairs when receiving the condolences from visitors. In some cases, relatives or friends take care of the bereaved's house chores, as cook, such as cooking and cleaning. English speakers use the expression to sit shiva. During the, shlo- sorry. During the shloshim, the mourners are no longer expected to sit on the floor or be taken care of, like cooking or cleaning. However, some customs still apply. There is a prohibition of getting married or attending any sort of celebrations, and men refrain from shaving and cutting their hair. 
Restrictions during the year of mourning include not wearing new clothes, not listening to music, and not attending celebrations. In addition, the sons of the deceased recite the Kaddish prayer for the first 11 months of the year. It's interesting that there's a lot of not cutting hair. I agree. I agree. And it's interesting that we live in a culture that really uh, polices the hair of men. Yeah. 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 Yep. Grief theory is what I'm going to talk about next. Our journey into grief history begins in 1917 when Freud published his paper, Mourning and Melancholia. Freud proposed that a bereaved individual must engage in grief work to properly heal from a loss. Grief work is the process by which an individual breaks their bond to the deceased, adjusts to their new life, and forms new relationships with others. According to the Freudian theory, the best way to overcome grief is to throw oneself into other aspects of life. The next development in grief theory happened in the late 1960s when Kubler-Ross theorized that grief occurred in predictable stages. These stages were as follows, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. While this theory is still widely regarded in grief counseling today, many scientists have valid criticisms of it regarding it. For one, this theory was originally based purely on anecdotal evidence rather than empirical scientific study. And secondly, most science postulate that grief is much more nebulous uh, than clear stage theory. I'm also going out on a limb and saying this is also a very Western um, centered perspective on grief as well. And I believe it was written for people who receive cancer diagnoses. Okay. In 1999, Margaret Strobe and Hank Schutt came up with the dual process model, the DPM of model of grief. This theory suggests that grieving individuals engage with stress involved in loss, as well as the stress involved in returning to normalcy. Individuals oscillate between two states, loss orientation, LO, and restoration orientation, RO. While in LO, the griever engages in emotion-focused coping, where different tactics are used to avoid the negative emotions associated with loss. In RO, the griever engages in problem-focused coping, where the griever makes active efforts to confront and overcome stressors. As expansive of as many as these many grief theories are, they, these are only the tip of the iceberg. Considering grief can express itself in such variable ways, it should be no shock that there is no shortage of ways to conceptualize it. I want to I want to just document my shock at how how we speak about how we speak about grief in a therapeutic framework and how it's spoken about in ritual in religion. Obviously there's going to be much more cultural experience of grief outside of religion, but it's very it's very predictive of uh, certain regions and these are all western clinicians. And there's very classic Freud up in that first paragraph. <laughs> all right well stay tuned after the break as we talk to our guests for today all right i'm pleased to welcome sarah uh calney she is a licensed mental health counselor out of massachusetts specializing in grief and anxiety she utilizes humor a social justice perspective and a person-centered approach in her practice welcome sarah hi thanks so much for having me 
It's so good to have you. Yes, I'm very excited. I don't know why I just said <laughs> I apologies. You're fine. It's okay. <laughs> Sarah, we are so excited to have you here for our first episode back to talk about a topic that's very important mm. and also a topic that many of us have had to be have had to confront in a way that we may have not previously understood. So I'm so happy to just receive knowledge from you. <laughs> oh, awesome. I am very excited to share. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like I think, I mean, grief touches everybody, right? Like it's a huge part of just being a human and living in the world. Like we experience quite a bit of loss in many different ways. So I think it's important to be able to talk about like what that means. Obviously it's going to look different for every person, um, but I think especially since the pandemic, there's been so much that has come up for people. So destigmatizing some of that experience, I think, is hugely important. So I'm very excited to talk about disenfranchised grief specifically, um, because I think that's something that, you know, besides regular grief and like death, which is difficult, mm-hmm. we experience all different other kinds of losses that people might look at and say, but why is that a big deal when it can be a huge deal? Ah. And I can imagine the, you know, invalidation that happens with that and just like the, the damage it can do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I loved to like listening to the lesson talking about, um, like religious grieving practices, because a lot of it does have to do with like being in community. And Mm. that's, I think one of the biggest ways in which we can sort of like move through grief not necessarily like easier, but like it can be maybe a little bit more palatable when we're like in it together with other people. And I think when we're talking about disenfranchised grief specifically, it's not being able to have those connections and not being able to have that community because it's not looked at as normal, I guess, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, normal, right? Kind of thing, right? Like, so disenfranchised grief, if anybody who's listening isn't familiar, um, is like when we're grieving something that doesn't fit society's expectation of like grief and loss. Hmm. Um, And most of the time we don't get support around it because people don't see it as something that's worth supporting because it's not a big enough deal. Mm -hmm. In in air quotes, everything in air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like some good examples would be like our profession, right? Like being therapists. So if we lose a client, whether that's because they like terminated or they ghosted or they passed away um, or like EMTs, doctors, right? So anybody who's kind of in like a healthing profession or a health profession, when we experience those losses, we can, there can be grief around it, even though it's like we're trained. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, termination is like a normal part of the process, but like it can still be sad especially if you had like a really good relationship with that client. Um, I also think it's really interesting. I work a lot with um, the queer community. So people who are in like poly relationships and if they lose one of the partners, whether that's because it's like a breakup or a death um, and if other people didn't know that they were in a poly relationship, that can be really hard Mm -hmm. because they might feel like they can't express that loss of that person in whatever capacity, but it could also be like the loss of a coworker, Um, a lot of people experienced grief during the pandemic because of having to work from home and not being able to be like around their coworkers and like having that kind of social life. So there's that too. Um, Taboo deaths, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody's struggling with like an addiction and passed away from like an overdose, for example, or um, 
I mean, I guess a little bit of a trigger warning, but like suicide um, is also really difficult. And anybody who maybe had like a miscarriage or an abortion, that can also be really difficult of not getting that kind of support. Um, I also work with some clients who have like chronic illnesses or like sudden illnesses that happened. And so there's a lot of grief and loss about like no longer being able to function like physically at the same level that they used to be able to. So there's a lot of grief and loss around like adjusting to having to live a new life. So no longer having connections to like exercises that they used to do or being able to do like the same physical activities anymore is a huge adjustment. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like having to cut people out of your life, right? So say you're, you don't have a great relationship with a parent and making the decision to no longer be in contact with that parent, right? There's a lot of grief around that. Um, and like, that's, a, I think, a good example where people might not receive support, right? Because it's like, no, they're like so toxic. Like you shouldn't have a relationship with them. But like, w- yes, that's fine. We can acknowledge that that's yeah. true. But also like, this was my parent, like, I think one of the people that I love the most in like the grief community, specifically in Massachusetts, his name is Ken Barringer. I took one of his grief classes. He's great. He has a podcast called Grief and Brief. Um, should I get paid for, you know, doing like all these little networking things? Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> um, just like throwing stuff out there. But uh, what I really liked that he uses is instead of saying like loved one, like in specific to like a a loss of a person, whether that's through death or disconnecting from them or setting boundaries or whatever, um, saying important person, yeah, which I really like, um, because it can also be like, say somebody was in an like abusive relationship, right. And they disconnected from that person and maybe that person like passed away or just like the disconnection from that relationship in general, like they're not going to say that that's my loved one because there might not necessarily be those feelings because of mm-hmm. other stuff that maybe happened within that relationship. But being able to say like important person, that person was important to you or significant to you in some way in your life. Yeah. I think it can make it a little bit more palatable to like talk about or give it a little bit more like space. Right. Instead of just specifically saying loved one, because we lose people all the time that we don't necessarily you know, air quotes again, love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are all such great examples. And I'm so I'm so happy that you have the taboo list as well. And I, it just makes me so sad that like ethical non monogamous relationships are still people still have to be yeah. uh, closeted with those in certain circles. But uh, you know, safety is paramount. I'm also thinking, and you may have mentioned this. So tell me but just like being the like the person outside of extramarital affair like if you were somebody's Mm, like mm -hmm. lover for like you know months or years and not being able to grieve that in a certain way and the morality around that and how how horrible and sad and lonely that is yeah yeah no 100 percent. yeah and like on top of that too like if there's things that aren't known in relation to that relationship. Mm -hmm. So like the person could have been like, oh, I didn't know that this person like was married or I did, but obviously the married person doesn't know that I was involved with their spouse and then everything can get like so, so complicated, but it is also Mm -hmm. like othering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) And like stuff that we like don't think about. Yeah. It's made me think about how 
you know, we read that whole history lesson about all the different types and, you know, that's just like scraping the surface of, you know, different ways that cultures express the grief and just like how grief is experienced so differently from person to person Mm -hmm. and how maybe our culture and society doesn't really set us up for that. Um, I'm just speaking as like for the culture that I'm a part of and the Mm -hmm. society that I'm a part of that is just like kind of boilerplate like hallmark card when you know someone says I'm so sorry for your loss and you're just kind of like oh oh yeah yeah thank you right yeah Yeah, and the I'm realizing Joanna as you say that like the gall of this like because usually when we say I'm sorry in our western exchanges there is the expectation that you're going to like forgive the person for something (laughs) and I know that that's not what the intention is but there's still this like this gap because there's no response to that that's there's no response to I'm sorry for your loss that is um, acceptable like hey how are you doing I'm doing okay you know there's no like I I feel like some people do sometimes accidentally say oh it's okay or you don't need to be sorry like there's this like expectation that's put on the person grieving that is very unfair and murky despite it being like a, a kind well wish and you know like a genuine like I'm sorry for this yeah, like a gap in our language there. Yeah, there. When I was in, this is actually somewhat related, I guess. But when I was in college, I took um, like a theology course because I ended up minoring in like religious and theological studies. Um, and one of the books that we read was a mourning book. Like it was about like grief and like managing because it was my professor. It was her book, of course, like I'm going to make students buy the book. Um, but she was talking about like the loss of her brother, which had been like super sudden. I think it was an accident. Um, and one of the things that she had talked about was being able to figure out different language around talking about death and like wanting to support someone who's grieving because I'm sorry wasn't it just like wasn't working and it it yeah. wasn't like a good uh, a good fit for that the process which I like didn't really understand when I was in college but now I'm kind of like oh I like totally get it now like this is not it's not something that necessarily fits in with like what people I think are intending but we don't have anything else Mm-mm. to work with which I think should change but I think it's also very difficult and very hard to figure yeah. out maybe like what that might look like I usually try and ask like like I would for a friend who's struggling where it's like do you want like advice right now like do you want mm-hmm. like specific helping problem solving related things or you just want to like vent like what do you which one do you think would be more, more helpful for you? So like approaching it that way of yeah. like, in what way can I support you? Like, and leave the autonomy in the person, like the grieving person's hands, as opposed to just kind of like going through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. I think being comfortable with a little bit of silence is so, like, yeah. like goes hand in hand with that too. I'm, I'm, I, I, had this strange experience once of going to a funeral and seeing, you know, a family member of the deceased and saying, hi, how are you? And then immediately like wanting (laughs) to crawl into my own skin. And, and, you know, they were not upset with me, but I, I was like, oh, this is the greeting I have for seeing someone that I care about, you know, it's, and, and I feel like now 
just saying that person's name and walking up to them and just holding them like is an oak like I think that's something I can put into practice now comfortably yeah. but before I mean we I mean um Sarah you speak about in our initial contact like talking about this western perspective of grief mm-hmm. and how it contributes to disenfranchised grief yeah and how our western individualism just like does not leave room for silence and discomfort mm-hmm. and uh sitting with feelings yeah. uh, making room for that because we don't get to produce or consume uh, during right. these interactions right yeah 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 I also yeah. feel like it doesn't leave space for anger as well I mean thinking about yes. you know the the just disenfranchised just like hey also you probably have unrealized anger if this is someone who was an abuser or just like had a not a great relationship with you or you know yeah or had a great relationship with you and you're pissed now because they're gone you know (laughs) right exactly Mm -hmm. I think that there's so much fear around or like fear is not the right word maybe more discomfort Mm -hmm. around anger especially when it comes to grief um when I think it's I love talking about anger. I love talking about it like all the time, especially with my um, like AFAB clients, my assigned female at birth clients, because I think for many of us AFAB individuals, um, we find ourselves in positions of not being allowed, again, air quotes, not being allowed (laughs) to feel our anger. Um, And so I love being able to, to talk about it of like, it is totally reasonable It is so reasonable and valid to feel that anger and to feel that frustration. Either it's because there's something that's unresolved that will remain unresolved in some capacity because the person's no longer here or no longer in your life or whatever that means. Or Joanna, like you were saying, it was an amazing relationship. And now like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to curse a little bit, but like, fuck, it's gone. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. have that anymore. And we can feel like so much of that frustration of like not having something that we want mm-hmm. and having yeah. to adjust to that and make that adjustment. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't really like the Kubler-Ross model very much. I don't really mm-hmm. think it's super accurate, yeah. but one of the things that I'll talk about often with clients is like the tasks of mourning, um, which is, mm, it, I guess it's like kind of similar because it like is an explanation for like the grieving process in a way, but there's no timeline to it. And there's no um, like specific structure, right? So you can like revisit any of the tasks at any time. You can start any of the tasks at any time. So it's like one through four, but you could start at three and then go to one and then like bounce around and stuff. Um, But I think it's like much more intuitive in like, talking about the grieving process and like understanding what it might look. So like acceptance, right? Like accepting that the loss happened and that this is something that we're going to have to eventually move on from. Well, not really necessarily move on from, but like integrate, I guess. Right. Exactly. Or like process because grief is always going to be with us in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the idea that most people have of like the before and then the after is super accurate, right? So it's like, this was the me before and this is the me after. And that's also like one of the other tasks is like adjusting to a world without X, right? Without 
your house or without your job or without Mm -hmm. your partner or just like knowing that you're like your ex is no longer going to be in your life or whatever that looks like. Um, And then processing the pain and grief, which is super important, obviously, for all therapy things. Let's process our feelings. And that's Mm -hmm. my favorite part. Um, And then being able to like remember whatever it is that you lost, like it's part of your story, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's something that will define you. I love, I love framing that as tasks rather than like a stage that you need to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You can go back and complete the tasks and kind of just like add to your bookshelf of No, exactly. Exactly. Like it's super flexible and fluid, which I think is so nice. I don't, I don't like holding clients to like specific things. I mean, there's like some, some like coping skills and things like that, that we'll use that like are structured. And that's like the point is the structure. But I think especially when it comes to grief, being able to have the flexibility to move through the process and not feel like, oh, I'm doing it wrong or for my perfectionist clients, right. Who feel like, well, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. It's like, this is okay. Like it's supposed to be messy. Like this, none of this is going to be comfortable and you can like revisit as many times as you need to, as many times as you have to, like, there's no perfect way of getting anything done. Like it's just going to happen as it happens and being able to have that fluidity, I think makes it a little bit more like, like, okay, this is one less thing because on top of everything else that I have to deal with, like one of the parts of, um, of the tasks of mourning, when it says to like adjusting to a world without whatever you lost, a part of that is also understanding what is my new identity without this thing. So if it's the loss of like a parent, for example, the child may have to readjust their identity and maybe take on responsibilities that used to belong to the person who passed, like just use a stereotypical example. Um, and so there, there is like a lot of that adjustment and a lot of other things that have to go into moving through this process. So it's like giving the space to do that, however it is that you need to do that, I think is so much better than being like, okay, you have to have your checklist and you have to fill out your checklist exactly in this order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, as a perfectionist, I would be like, yep, let me do. Right. As someone who's experienced grief, like I know it's definitely not, there's no way to to micromanage processing grief at all. Yeah, no. It's, it kind of takes on a a mind of its own in a way. And Mm -hmm. some of that is just being able to like roll with the punches and that, like, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days and don't have any expectation of like, I was like feeling better. And now, oh my gosh, like I feel really bad. And it's like, that's fine. That's okay. It makes sense. And most of the time it's like, usually because we're triggered by something, like mm-hmm. there's something that reminds us of whatever. And it's like, oh, well, I'm right back where I started. And it's like, that's okay. Like it, it, it's all cyclical. Yeah. And then eventually like over time, we kind of get better at being able to like manage those emotions because we're utilizing additional coping skills that we have, or like we're taking the time to just like feel those feelings, whatever they are that come up for us. And I, I don't necessarily like saying that like time heals all wounds. Cause I don't necessarily think that that's true, but I do think in the grieving process that like time is a helper. And so knowing that it's like, it's going to be really hard right now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to continue to be this hard. 
right? There may be like periods where it will be difficult, but not in the same way. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's such a, again, the, Every day, there's this reminder of self-compassion because you're always yes. going to be stumbling upon an anniversary. You're always going to be stumbling upon a reminder, yes. or you will come to a time in your life that you are expecting to share with this person. Like you know, you could have these this what we would label in our perfectionism relapse, but really, it's just like new grief. It's right. a new memory that you're grieving. It's yes. a new like missed opportunity. Yeah, and like approaching it from that, it, it helps so much with trauma clients as well. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Like this, this is you're you're having this response because this is something that hasn't happened to you yet, and you're learning right. how to deal with it. Um, and I mean, as a perfectionist in recovery. I'd like to say, I hope that that's completely true. <laughs> I mean, that's been very helpful for me in therapeutic work is just reminders that, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to gain a skill and have it be able to apply to everything blanket uh, right. immediately. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a nice reminder. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's hugely important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Especially because again, like grief is going to take on a mind of its own and there's going to be stuff that's going to come up that we weren't necessarily like expecting. Um, like I think I like using the like parent example because I think it's, it's universal no matter how you slice it, whether it's like having to disconnect from a, from that family member with setting boundaries because it's just a toxic relationship or like a passing or whatever it is. Um, but being able to like, being able to like understand that it's like, this does not have to be like a prescripted experience because you can like cut off that relationship and like be okay, maybe even relieved. Right. Which is another form of disenfranchised grief is not experiencing stereotypical air quotes, stereotypical (laughs) emotions related to grief. Right. Is that like, I'm not sad. I'm glad, or I'm relieved that this Mm -hmm. is over. Um, so there's, there's that piece, right? So it's not like all nice and pretty. That's like, oh, I'm going to cry. And then like, it's going to be fine. It's like, eh, it mm-hmm. might be a little bit like messier than that. Or like, you might actually feel a lot better. Um, but also that like, yeah, it's not like the, the prescriptive nature of it and that we might be okay for maybe a couple of months, a couple of years. And then something happens, like you get engaged and you're going to get married or you're going to have your first kid. And it's like, oh, my parents not here. They're not going to see this. Like they're not going to experience it. And it might be something that you weren't necessarily thinking about because it's like, yay, this is exciting, which it is, but there can still be grief attached to that because, oh, they're not going to be present for that. So all the different unexpected ways. It's giving me so much to think about and so, so much pain or relief or other surprising emotions that came up, you know, in the past. So this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, I totally going along with the like huge life transitions. You just absolutely think of huge losses in your past as, as someone who recently went through an extremely huge life transition, a child, Yes, just like, whoa, you know, very sad. This person isn't here to meet them. Right. Um, and just like dealing with the anger and that, like, that's not fair. And then also like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so complicated. And I think it does, it's almost like it's makes self-compassion. Maybe, I don't know. 
like because grief is so amorphous, you kind of have to fall into it. Yeah. So it's like a lot, it like really allows for that self-compassion because like I literally can't control this right at all. So I right. have to follow wherever it goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the um the idea of like resistance. And I think that there's like a lot of this, like culturally speaking, like mm-hmm. at least in like the Western like society that we live in, there is like this resistance to it where it's like, well, you get a couple of days and like, you know, it's fine. Like whatever, you'll get over it when it's like, oh, the, oh no, no, <laughs> it does not work that way. Um, But like, I, I have worked with many clients who have been grieving and having this resistance to allowing themselves to feel the feelings of grief, whatever that means for them. And having to have those conversations of it's okay to just feel it. And if that means that you're going to scream, it means that you're going to scream. And if that means you're going to cry, you're going to cry. And if it means that you're laughing hysterically, or if it means that you're so angry, like it, it doesn't matter. Just allow yourself to feel those feelings because the more you fight it, the worse it's going to end up being in the long run. You're probably going to end up feeling worse. And we're already dealing with like anxiety, depression, or like all this (laughs) other kind of stuff. So let's allow ourselves to kind of like move through this before it becomes something that's contributing to making underlying stuff that already exists harder. Right. Like that's not yeah. make us harder than it like needs to be, which is like, and uh, it's very easy to say that, like, obviously it's very different having to like go through that experience. Um, and I like to use combination of a bunch of different things, but a lot of like creative activities. So like a lot of like writing, a lot of, I mean, for, for those of my clients who are like much more artistic than I am, like painting can be a big one too, of just like, how are you going to externalize these feelings and what will that mean to you? And especially if we're feeling like anger around a loss, um, being able to write how you feel, whether that's like a letter to that person. And this is my favorite activity is like, I'll have someone write down, like write everything that you would want to say. It doesn't matter how ugly it is or whatever, like get it all out, write it down. What would you say to this person? Like expressing how angry you are. And then when you're done, rip it up, like destroy the letter, either like rip it up into pieces or burn it. Burn it is like a really good, I think symbolizing kind of experience. Um, because it gives us that space to sort of ex- just like feel the feelings that we're feeling, externalize them so we're not holding them in our heads and they become bigger than maybe they actually are. And then there's a little bit of that symbolic releasing it to the universe kind of thing and not having to hold on to it. I don't I'm not particularly religious or spiritual, so I personally don't necessarily practice much of that in the grieving process, but I always will ask my clients, like, do you consider yourself spiritual religious? And like, what does that look like for you? And would you like that? Would you like to incorporate that into your grief? And what would that look for you? Um, so like for Catholic clients that I've worked with and like, and in my own experience, I was raised Catholic. I no longer practice. Um, but like lighting candles is a really big one and like saying a prayer or like visiting a place that the person would have gone to or really enjoyed can also be a good one or like doing some kind of like celebration in the memory of that person, no matter what that looks like can be useful too. I think that's incredible. What a, what a good idea. Hello listeners. As always a deep thanks to you for listening. We're so excited to continue this interview. So stay tuned for part two coming to you soon. 
If you would like early access to full interviews, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. That's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. Take a look at the show notes for important links. And as always, we are your therapists next door. Thank you.